This podcast includes information provided by the issuer and does not express the views of the interviewer. This podcast may also include forward-looking statements by the issuer that involve certain risks and uncertainties to its business. Because forward-looking statements are subject to risks and uncertainties, the issuer's actual results could differ from those indicated in this podcast. This is Robert Kraft, and I'm your host for the Planet Microcap Podcast. I'd like to welcome you all here, and thank you for listening. You can follow the podcast uh, both on my Twitter, at Bobby K. Kraft. That's B-O-B-B-Y-K-K-R-A-F-T. Uh, or you can go and listen to this podcast. You might be listening to this on one of these platforms now, but on uh, pretty much anywhere you can get podcasts. Apple, Spotify, uh, Stitcher, you know, YouTube. You can listen to it there. And uh, I really appreciate you all tuning in. Uh, also, another quick reminder, um, please, if you're interested in participating, I highly recommend you go and register for our upcoming virtual event, the SNN Network Virtual Investor Conference. It's August 3rd through the 6th, 2020. Uh, we have some incredible speakers lined up, as well as some fantastic companies that will be doing presentations. You can go on there and listen to all the panels, keynotes, company presentations, book one-on-ones. In fact, you know, with the gentleman that I have on today, Speaking of Australia, we're going to have a really cool Australia panel uh, that's moderated by Mark Tobin. So that'll be really fun to go and check out. So um, I invite you all to go check it out. The website is conference.snn.network. It's a little different and interesting. So conference.snn.network. Go and register there. And uh, I look forward to seeing you all. Now for today's podcast, I have a really awesome guest who uh, this I think is his first time ever doing a podcast. And we're going to keep it anonymous. We're, I've done a string of anonymous <laughs> interviews recently, and we're going to keep it that way. So joining me today is at the Gladiator HC. He is the founder and editor of Speculator Investor. I believe that's the name of the website, right? Specinvestor.com. The Spec Investor, that's right, yeah. Spec Investor. We're going to be talking all things microcap today. This is going to be a, a true blue microcap uh, in, interview today. Uh, so I'm going to be referring to the Gladiator HC as uh, Maximus Decimus Meridius, you know, because I believe that's our favorite movie right now. We're going we're gonna to go there. So uh, with that, I, I got the Gladiator HC, a.k.a. Maximus. What's up, man? How are you doing today? Hey, thanks for having me, Bobby. I'm a huge fan of your show. So it, it's an honor to be here. It's, it is my first podcast. So I was you know, sweating a bit earlier on, palms are sweating and stuff, but, you know, feeling comfortable now. So let's get into it. Hey, palms are sweating, knees weak. <laughs> you know, but, I mean, we could do it. We could go, we could go full M&M right now. It'd be really cool. A bit later, a bit later. <laughs> yeah, for sure, dude. Well, th- thank you again for joining us and uh, I do appreciate it. So uh, screw it. Let's dig right in. So uh, let's start with your background. You know, when and where did your passion for investing start? Yeah, so uh, growing up, you know, my parents were quite heavily invested in real estate. So they had a number of you know property investments that they would you know purchase and hold and, and rent out. So uh, real estate investment was it's kind of in my blood. So coming towards the end of the GFC, you know, I, th- I think I was twenty or twenty nine years old. Um, I had enough uh, capital to purchase my first investment property. Um, and so around that time in Australia, you know, end of the GFC, it, it wasn't great for the property market um, for for sellers but it was great for buyers so a bit of luck came my way so you know i really remember it vividly for some reason i have a terrible memory but i remember this and it was about 11 years ago now 12 years ago so 
I um, it was my first day out with my fiance at the time, looking for properties to buy. And it was, I think it was my second or third property. Uh, we got there about 15 minutes early. So just stumbled upon some other property down the road that was having an open house. So we thought, you know, why not just go have, have a look? It was outside of our budget. You know, I checked it up on realestate.com. Um, but I thought, you know, instead of sitting in the car, we'll go check out this property. So we went and saw it. Of course, it was outside of my budget. So we loved it. It had all the things that we wanted. Um, regretted it at the time to think, oh, what am I going to buy now after I've seen a property like this? Um, and so as a joke, kind of on my way out, um, it, it was a joke, but I know that in Australia, the law says if anyone um, provides an offer to the agent, you know, by law, they have to provide it to the vendor. So the property was actually listed for 480,000 and the vendor brought it down to 480, uh, 440,000, sorry, to try and kind of get rid of it really quickly. It must've been in a bad uh, position. And so I gave this low ball offer of 390,000. I'm not expecting to ever get a call back or anything like that. Um, to my surprise, a few hours later, the agent called me and said, oh, you know, the vendor's counter offering a bit of 410. And I thought, wow, this came back $30,000 um, in a few hours. So I'm sure I can get him down a bit more. So I um, got him down to 400, went in the, met in the middle and went into the real estate office to sign the papers. And I remember my fiance at the time was so nervous. You know, she, um, it was a lot of money for, you know, a couple of 20 year olds. But I remember that it didn't really phase me at all. It was like I was signing up to buy, I don't know, something that was worth $200. So in that moment, I kind of knew that my mentality and the way that I think of money and risk and investing probably different to a lot of people. Um, and that's kind of where my investment uh, journey started. And, you know, that was real estate. And, you know, as you would know, to buy another property, you know, I always want to buy more properties, but it would take a few years to kind of save up a deposit. And so I thought instead of just, you know, waiting a few years and just saving to get the money, I would try in, in the meantime, learn a new skill, you know, what else could I invest in? And that's when I kind of stumbled upon the share market. And um, we have a- timing. Wow. Oh, and it was right after the Man. GFC. Uh, so and I really, I had no idea what the stock market was. I kind of knew of what it was, but not really how it worked or, you know, uh, I knew it was kind of, you know, buying a share in a company, but I didn't know what micro caps were or large caps or anything like that. So I was really very, very green. Um, came in probably at the perfect time. A year earlier, I probably would have just been smashed as soon as I came into the market. And so um, I was just doing some Google researching to try and you know, learn a bit about it. And I came across this site called Hot Copper. In Australia, that's a stock market forum. Um, it has something like 90% of the market share. So I think they get about 60 million views a year today. So it's a huge uh, site where a lot of people just go on and talk about stocks. And Luckily for me, the majority of the conversations on this site are for microcaps. And so without even knowing it, I was trying to learn from these guys who were talking about these companies that were all microcaps and I didn't even know it. And I say thankfully because today I love microcaps. Couldn't imagine being like, you know, it'd be so boring, I think, being a large cap investor. Just uh, no, no offense to any large cap investors, but to <laughs> me, I think it kind of it fits my personality perfectly, microcaps. Um, and so, yeah, I... That was 2009 and in the first few years, I kind of I blew up my account twice, um, just making the same mistakes that a lot of new investors do. I know twice, some people learn the first time, I needed two times. Um, and it really, it, it, was, it didn't dishearten me because I knew that it was happening because I was taking shortcuts. You know, I was, someone would put on a rocket ship emoji or saying this stock is going to the moon. And you know, that's it, I bought it. I had no idea what the stock was, what, what it did, um, and I'd buy in. And, 
the first stock I ever bought actually bagged, which was the worst thing that could have possibly happened to me because putting my money, double it within a few weeks and having really done no work to even know what they were doing, it just set me up for a couple of years of you know, heartache and failure because I thought it was so easy. I could just keep doing, you know, do a quick Google search or a hot copper search, find a stock and next thing you know, I've doubled my money. And obviously it doesn't work that way. Stocks only go up, you know? <laughs> uh, let's not get there yeah. um and so yeah. i um i blew, blew up the account twice we're now in about 2012 13 and i kind of made a pact with myself that you know i was going to take this more seriously more professionally so i put together a strategy i um i would run through all these stocks through my strategy of course still learning as i go but it took me another uh to about 2015 to break even that was about five or six years after I'd started. And I had put in like thousands of hours, really from 2012 to 15, I put in honestly thousands of hours worth of effort into learning, making mistakes, learning again, trying not to repeat it. And um, after all that time, I didn't make any money. But the way I, you, know, you can look at that in a glass half full or half empty way, for me, it was definitely half full. Because I thought, okay, fucking in the first five years, I've learned all of these skills. I haven't made money, but I was able to come back from losing my money twice. Um, and so if I just keep at it for another five years, you know, imagine where I could be and which is kind of where I am today. So I know I went through a lot of heartache and I think a lot of people go through the same thing um, and they kind of quit at the worst time because right when you've just about had enough is a time where things start to make sense and you start to improve and you start to get better. Um, and so, yeah, and here we are about 10 or 11 years later. I still, I, I love it honestly even more than I did probably 10 years ago because as I learn more, I start to understand more about you know, investing in general and in, in the micro cap space. And there's some great micro cap investors out there, um, especially on Twitter that I've learned from the last few years. So, yeah, I'm really loving it at the moment. So did you, do, did you only focus and continue to only focus in Australia or, or do you look globally as well? No, I only focused on Australia and it wasn't really a conscious decision. I think we just have so many opportunities here um, in Australia because, you know, we... It's such a robust, are, it's such a robust microcap market down there. I mean, it's, oh, it's, it's huge. incredible. Yeah, it's well, incredible. we've got um, oh, a population of only 25 million um, and not many people exchange on, oh, sorry, trade on or invest in other exchanges. So the competition in Australia is so low and we have so much variety here because, you know, I think in the US... You, you need a minimum of 100 million market cap to be able to list or IPO. In Australia, that's only 15 million. So we're getting hundreds of stocks on the ASX that um, a lot of other exchanges in the world and micro cap investors just don't get any exposure to. So I haven't really felt the need to invest in other exchanges at the moment, but you know, I'm not against it. Uh, there's probably some well, barriers. Um, it's not really easy, I've found, to kind of invest in other exchanges. Maybe it's just me, but yeah. Yeah. No, what's interesting. I mean, the, the main point I wanted to bring up because like, you know, I've talked to with Mark Tobin and, you know, Tobias yeah. Carlisle and, and Tony Hansen, Matt Joss, and they'll, you know, these guys, you know, I mean, uh, Tobias is focused on everything, but like, yeah. you know, those, those three guys, the other three guys, like they're focused specifically on Australia. Um, and what's interesting, uh, well, Okay, let's just well for the time being, for argument's sake, they're focused on Australia. Yeah. And the thing that I learned from them was that it, it's you know it's not just that um, it's in the core of the culture that of that definitely. And I hate yeah. saying this word, but that kind of 
gambling gambling here, mentality you yeah. know but like it's so it's so fascinating that it's it's like i mean we're kind of starting to see it come over here in the u.s a little bit more you know yeah. but it's but this is something that's been going on in australia for a long time now yeah absolutely and i like the way you put it it is a kind of gambler's mentality but that obviously has a negative connotation to it but we love to try and find stocks really really early on and we like to prove that they're not just crap penny stocks, right? And so like <laughs> it's great that we have these really small companies um, very early on in their development coming in because with that, you get a lot of crap stocks, of course, um, who I probably wouldn't value at you know, more than $100, let alone 15 million. But it means that we're getting a lot of kind of VC kind of um, opportunities that a lot of other exchanges just don't get. Well, it, re it reminds me of like the TSX Venture a little bit where it, like yeah. the TSX Venture stocks, like they had that, venture mentality you know yep. lower listing standards but still quality enough where you can find quality actually the the similarities are crazy even more so just you know canadian yeah, market, australia with you know heavily focused on mining and whatnot so it's pretty interesting in that regard too yeah mining is a huge thing on the asx you know, the australian economy is kind of um, our foundation is mining uh, i think we have a really undervalued tech sector um, we get a lot of these techs coming because they want to list uh, and not go through the VC route. They come mostly from the US, uh, Israel as well, and they list on the ASX. And so we get a lot of these really great opportunities in the tech sector. And I'm, I'm a tech kind of guy. I'm not techie when it comes to like computers and stuff, but I love technology. So um, it's a great opportunity there as well. Oh, for sure. So, okay. So uh, let's, I want to unpack a little bit too from your beginning and, you know, going yep. on hot copper and learning. What was some of the, the early on lessons that helps shape where you're at today. Yeah, don't take any uh, stock tips from social media. <laughs> That's the first one. <laughs> Most people jump on to try and find Check. an opportunity. Yeah, oh, we've all <laughs> done it, of course. Um, but I think there's, there's some nuggets in, I would say more on Twitter, but there are some really great people that you could learn from and not about the stocks they're buying, but how they kind of approach the idea of uh, stock analysis and micro cap analysis. And, you know, there's, there's certain risk management kind of protocols you could put into place that have nothing to do with the stock in general, but more about maybe the, the structure, um, director holding, stuff like that, where if you focus on them, you can kind of rule out 80% of the crap, um, even though the stock might look good on paper, which a lot of these you know, blue sky stocks do. Um, if you can implement some of those risk management protocols that I learned early on from a lot of those people on Hot Copper and uh, Twitter, you can really save yourself a lot of time and money. In making those mistakes so I, I asked the same question to mark so i have to ask you too you know how, how do you reconcile because i'm assuming you're more on the value side in terms of your investing strategy right we'll get more I, into that but but yeah, yeah i'm kind of split i'm kind of split between you know i, I'm, I am a story stock guy so i okay. probably uh, early on i was about 100 percent story talk story stock zero percent real business and over the years i'm probably at 50 50 now okay. so i do love my story stocks but i do also like to find uh, companies or you know real businesses, if I can put it that way, that are coming towards profitability, um, maybe two, three, four quarters down the track, and keeping an eye on them and investing in them as they can you know compound over the years. Gotcha. All right. Well, we're going to get to that in a second because I yeah. have to ask this question first. How do you yeah, reconcile the crazy share counts? I mean, that I feel like a lot of U.S. microcap, like especially the long-term value guys that are looking at the cap structures. You know, I mean, billion share count you know yeah. you know you you just don't see that in, in some of the in a lot of the quality micro caps up here you know how, how do you reconcile that where it might actually be a quality name but you know what what do you think about that 
Yeah, I think it, just based on my experiences, you know, I've, I've had stocks that have had 2 billion uh, shares on issue that have made 20 plus Ooh. bags from when I found them. And I've had stocks that have 30 million um, shares on issue. Um, great on paper as well, but really struggle to move. Um, so in Australia, I think the mentality is less about the share uh, amount of shares on issue and more about the share price. I, I know it sounds crazy, but if you've got a stock at 20 cents, and with the same market capitalization of a stock at two cents, in, on the ASX, it's honestly easier for the two cent stock to move than the 20 cent stock. And maybe there's just a lack of understanding around they say 20 cents and they say two cents and they, they can't understand that it's really the same market capitalization. Um, but in the beginning, it was kind of an issue for me. But as I was um, investing in some of these companies that had much larger uh, shares on issue, but they still kept performing, it became kind of less important over time. I do have a lot of other points that come into the share structure that I think are really important. So if you've got like a, a stock with 1 billion shares on issue, but you know, 700 million are owned by the top 20 shareholders and they've, they've held for three years, say, you know, they're sticky holders. You don't really have a share structure that where you're competing with a billion other shares. So there's things that I look for that kind of reduce the risk when it comes to those larger share structures. Um, but when you have a lot of these companies coming on with a $15 million market cap, you kind of can't avoid high share counts over the years because, you know, this rinse and repeat cycle of directors coming in, that they dilute the hell out of the shareholdings, do a, a stock split, that, you know, and they just continue on with that kind of mentality and that is, you know, kill shareholder value. Um, it's just, it's a little bit unavoidable in Australia. For sure. I, I, yeah. I mean, Mark, Mark was saying the same thing. I, I, yeah. I, it, may, it makes... Yeah, no, like it's kind of like, look, it's part of the system already. You kind of have to work within the system and then hopefully, you know, you adjust your strategy a little bit to make sure that it fits that system. Yeah, and I get the, the way that people look at it. If it's, there's just so many shares on issue, how could it possibly move? And I thought the same way, but just based on, you know, 10 years of doing this on the ASX only, um, it, it really hasn't been a hindrance at all for stocks being able to move, especially in the market cap space. I'm not sure of the, the, the rest of the the investment community, but in the micro cap space, it really doesn't stop a stock at all in Australia. Sure. All right. So now let's get to that investing philosophy and strategy. Uh, you already alluded yeah. to it a little bit, you know, tell us a little bit more about that, that philosophy and strategy. Yeah. If I was to kind of sum up my strategy at a holistic level, you know, I'm looking for underloved, under-researched turnaround stocks that are kind of run by directors who need the company. So the word need is very important to succeed as much as I do. Um, and that's a whole lot of words jumbled together. So why don't we kind of look at them individually? Um, but I think it's important to know that individually they don't make sense, but when you kind of bring them together, that's where the magic would happen. Um, and so let's just start with underloved. So I'm kind of looking for companies that have really frustrated and fed up shareholders. And it, you can find these situations where, you know, companies haven't been performing, the share price has been decimated for whatever reason. Um, you know, I'm a trader's worst nightmare. I love the look of a terrible chart sitting at 52-week lows um, because you find these shareholders who they're generally willing to let go of their shares at a heavily discounted rate. And that's because they've probably been there for a couple of years. The lack of execution by uh, the directors or the management team has just kind of gotten to the point where they just want out. Um, I know this sounds terrible. Who would invest in a company like this? But you've got to wait and you've got to put all the pieces together. Um, the second point, under-researched. So I focus on the really low end of the micro cap space. You know, micro cap is generally defined somewhere under 300 million market cap. I st I'm all the way at the bottom. I'm probably sub 30 mil market cap. 
um, and below. And oh, it, you're, kind you're, of nano, in, you're nano cap all the way. I, I don't get into all these different kind of, I just say it's all micro cap to me. That's it. <laughs> but fair, I am, in that, in that, <laughs> I am kind of nano cap. Um, and this end of the town, you really only have retail investors, um, very niche brokers, um, not many of them, and a very few full-time investors. So the competition is very low. Um, and, you know, put me against, you know, some Goldman Sachs analyst and they're going to blow me out of the water. So, you know, I, want, I don't want to be competing against people who's, who have dozens of analysts and managers and, and organizations analyzing all these stocks at the same time. You know, what chance would I have of kind of finding something before they do, you know, really low. So I'm looking for low competition. Um, and this third point around turnaround stocks really comes into the first point. So you've got this company, directors haven't been performing um, they've been around for a while, they're getting a good salary. So they, you know, they tick the boxes to kind of stay employed, but they're not really doing much to realize shareholder value. But then you suddenly have a new management team come in, you know, they might change the direction slightly. They've probably been in the sector for a while, so they could put on a bolt on a couple of products to make the, that company's, uh, product more, you know, appealing to investors. You know, they start managing cash better and they, you know, they manage it like it's their own cash and their own resources. And this is where you kind of have the turnaround story beginning. And this is where I like to get in. So, you know, you've got these stale shareholders. They, they don't believe the story of the new management team. They've, you know, they haven't had much success. So they just want to get out. And it kind of provides a liquidity event for me to come in and purchase those shares off them right at the point where the company is kind of turning around. And, and I'll go into the, the last and the most important point now, which is the director shareholdings. So, I highlighted before that I want to find companies that are run by directors who need the company to succeed as much as I do. And, and I'm sure every director on any kind of publicly listed company wants their stock to perform. But I think there's a difference between wanting and needing. And the only reason a director would need the performance, the performance of a stock to um, be in line with shareholders is if they owned a significant amount of shares themselves. Not that we're just gifted to them, but that they kind of bought on market at the same kind of price as anyone in the public had the opportunity to do. Um, and let me give you a, an example of why that's so important. Because if, if this isn't met, this point, it's very, very rare for me to invest in the company. And so it was a couple of years ago, I was digging into um, this company that kind of ticked a lot of the boxes that I've spoken about. Um, and I got into the point of looking at the CEO. You know, he was appointed in 2011. Um, the share price at the time was $1.70. And so I moved, to, moved on to see how many shares he owned, stuff like that. And I found that he had never bought any shares on market, um, which was really disappointing because once you find a stock, you get excited, oh, does this, does that, it's great. And they're like, oh, he has, he's never bought any shares on market in his like eight mm. years as running the company. Um, and so I thought, anyway, I'm not going to buy it, but I'll keep digging it anyway. And I found that in 2019, his salary was $400,000 a year. Okay. And even if you take inflation into account um, and with his uh, salary kind of increasing over time, he still took home somewhere in the vicinity of three and a half million dollars in pay over his tenure of the, um, with this company. So $1.70 when he started. And what do you think the share price is right now as we're speaking? Oh, under 10 cents for sure. Keep going. Under five? 0.6 of a cent. Wow. And he's still there. He's still running the company now. Right. And so during his tenure, the price dropped 99% for shareholders, but he took home three and a half million dollars. And I'm sure he, he has, he had all the great intentions in the world to get this stock 
you know, running, successful, hitting milestones. Um, but because his money wasn't on the line, it was a want, not a need. So I'm really trying to find companies that have directors who have significant shareholdings in the company. Um, and that way, my interests are aligned with theirs. Absolutely. I mean, what would you say of those main points? Because I mean, it seems like sourcing for all of that can sometimes be a little laborious. I mean, you know, what are, what are some of the ways in which you go and find some of these potential new ideas? Yeah, I, to be honest, I don't use scans or anything like that. It's pretty much, I'll, I'll use a scan to give me every stock under say 30 or 40 million market cap. Um, and I just look at them one by one. And I go through a lot of it. It's, it's more qualitative than quantitative. Um, yeah. They're not going to pop up in scans. Um, you know, there's a lot of things that I look for that could potentially just rule things out straight away. So it might take me two minutes to get rid of it. You know, if they've got no cash on hand, I don't want any part of it. No director shareholdings, you know, I don't want any part of it. If their top 20 only owns 20% of the register, then that's 80% that is, you know, not sticky. So I don't want a lot of that. So there's a lot of things I'll just gone, gone, gone. And I'll just, I get rid of a lot of them very quickly. And then I'll probably, let's say out of every hundred companies I'd look at, 10 would make it to the next stage where I actually would dive into the financials, dive into, you know, what did management commit to two, three years ago? Did they um, achieve those goals and really go into detail? So I wouldn't go into so much detail on all of them, probably only 10%. And of that 10%, I reckon only, you know, one or 2% would actually make it into the portfolio. How often do you do that on a, on a annual basis? Let's say. It's kind of just an ongoing process. I do a little bit every day. Yeah. Um, I have gone through the exercise once of about maybe six or seven hours a day, every day for about three months and looked at every single stock on the ASX that was below, I think 50 million market cap. Nice. And there's hundreds of them. Nice. Um, and I think that's go. really important for uh, investors early on in their career to do that. There's easier ways to do it, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, but you don't get exposure to different kinds of companies just by running scans. So right. it's something I, I, advise a lot of new investors to do is you just get in there get your hands dirty um it's going to take a lot of time don't think about it as you know um is this am i going to spend three months doing you know a lot of research and only finding a few companies it's not the point the point is learning in the beginning the money will take care of itself later uh, but just build up your skills in picking up on things that you know scans never would um good and bad things um things that may work against you and things that may work for you and then from there you know it will become a lot easier over time. And then I'm sure in time you can apply certain filters to scans and, and um, have a lot less companies in the bucket to look in. But um, in the beginning, I think yeah, it's really important to just smash through as many as you can. Also in the Australian market too, aren't there some companies that only um, report biannually? You know, so like it, it, I'm not, listen, there's no shortcuts, right? We all, <laughs> yeah, yeah. we all know that there's no shortcuts, but at the end of the day, like that, that helps a little bit, right? Yeah, so, so the vast majority of companies I've ever seen, they've got to report once a quarter on at least the cash flow. So we call, it's called a cash flow report. Um, right. And mer- probably 90% of them also announce a quarterly activities report, which is you know, what they got up to in the quarter. But that's, they don't have to do that, but most of them do anyway. And we have our annual report. So it's pretty much those five announcements, the four quarterlies, um, sometimes uh, another four quarterly activity reports. So it's about four or eight of those plus the annual report. It's, it's pretty much all you need to kind of quickly smash through and, and see what the company's doing. 
for sure. All right. Well, I take that back. There's not biannual. There's the same, <laughs> uh, same maybe there is. I've never, I've never seen it though. If there I, is. Well, I was talk, I was talking with, um, I, I was talking with Mark the other day. Maybe I just misunderstood. Like I, like, cause we were talking, cause we're put, you know, we're putting on this panel for our, for our events. So I was, I was yeah. confused where like the timing for when, um, certain companies, uh, announce and the timing for the event and whether it makes sense. So that's why that's maybe, maybe yeah. I was just off in, in how it is. Because we've got a lot of, um, say, U.S. tech stocks that list on the ASX, they, some, they would sometimes report calendar year versus financial year. We've got a bit of that mix up. Um, but I've never really seen a, a company not having to uh, um, announce at least an annual report and four quarterly cash flow reports on an annual basis. Don't worry, we'll, we'll cut that out. You know, uh, me, Maybe but, I'm wrong. Look, and I hey, just look, sound like an idiot. Sorry, hey, Mark. No, no, right. don't, no, 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 let me tell you something. Maximus, let me tell you something, Maximus. <laughs> There's always one point in the interview, and I always like to make sure it's a point that I ask one dumb question and make one dumb observation. So maybe I'll just have, give you guys one dumb answer. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, nah, I, don't, I don't think so. I, I'm going to take your word for it. So, um, anyways, so you know, moving to um, your 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 blog and uh, the Spec Investor blog, and as well as the 50k challenge. You know, this is really cool yep. what you got going on here. So. Can you explain a little bit about, you know, the blog and, and what, what your challenge is? Yeah. So the blog started about 18 months ago um, and it really came about because I get, so on, I'll take a step back on hot copper. There's about, I don't know, tens of thousands of users and they've got this kind of like heart system. So the top 20 most followed people on the site get this little heart. It's ridiculous. I don't know why they do it. They put it next to your name and it makes it look like you're some stock trading God. Um, and every, everyone's attention just goes to these kind of 20 people. And when I got that heart next to my name, I, don't, I have no idea why people would follow me to be honest. But when I got that heart next to my name, it pretty much made all these new investors to shout out all these questions. And they're, you know, they're just starting and it's always the same questions. So I thought instead of just, and, and we do have a bit of that on Twitter as well, but instead of just answering all of the same questions over and over again, I thought, why don't I just set up this site that deals with a lot of the things that new investors would need to learn and be aware of when they first start off. And so it was really, it was more challenging than I thought it would be. Because you know, in, in your head, like someone says to me, you know, what are the things that you look for in a micro cap stock? I've never really written them down you know, early on, but I kind of knew what they were in my head. But when I would go to write it, it just wouldn't make sense. So it really helped me clear my thoughts and really pen down what exactly am I looking for? What exactly are the things that you should be looking for? Um, risk management, all that kind of stuff. So even though it was challenging, it was really helpful for me as well and hopefully helpful for some new investors out there. And then when it comes to the 50K challenge, um, and so I'm, as you know, being in the micro cap space, we're looked up, down upon on in the investment community, right? If we find a stock that hundred bags or 10 bags, whatever it may be, it was just luck. And if we don't, and you know, someone blows up their account, then it's kind of inevitable because you're just a micro cap trader. You're a gambler. You're, it's just penny stocks and it's all these derogatory terms. So I thought, okay, why don't I set up this public portfolio of a $50,000 portfolio where I would try and show that micro cap investors can consistently make money in the long term. So I'm not looking for, hundred baggers, not looking to say, oh, look what I can um, turn $10,000 into a million, even though, you know, I'm not going to complain if I get a hundred bagger, but I'm more wanting to show consistency where in different markets, in different environments, during different times, uh, micro cap investors, if they approach um, this sector, you know, with risk at the forefront, then they can consistently make money in the long term. 
and you know, it could be luckily or unluckily, it, I launched it not long before COVID. So it did take a kind of a hit, but it showed that, you know, I, I let go of the stocks that wouldn't do well in a recession type environment. Um, and it's actually done really well since then. And it's shown that it's kind of back tested. And, you know, if you can come out through COVID and, and having turned a profit, then and not many people have. So it kind of shows that, yeah, it is possible. And I want to just continue it on for the years to come and hopefully be able to prove that, yeah, we can consistently just compound our money and just like everybody else. And we're not the crazy cousins who are, you know, in our mother's basement, just gambling all day and trying to find, you know, the next Google or the next Amazon. But there is a science behind it and it can't be kind of taken in a professional way. So I'm sure you get this question asked all the time. Are, are, is this real money as well? Yeah, or this is, is real money. Yeah, yeah, real, real money. And, yeah. and so, so is it 50K with each new name for which? No, no. So it's just, it's, so it's, the it's portfolio 50K value. stop. Oh, sorry. Go. Yeah, no. So the, the, the portfolio value started with $50,000 in cash. And I invested it in a number of companies. And then as I either buy or sell, I um, publish on my site live that I've either bought or sold something. And the result of that, that trade. So either did I make a profit or did I lose money? And so right now, I think we're sitting at about uh, 76,000. So about 50% profit in the first 12 months, um, which is I'm really happy with at the moment. And, but yeah, it's real money. And it's just the 50K is the original value of the portfolio. And then I'll, you know, hopefully one day as it gets bigger and bigger, maybe one stock takes up $50,000. Um, but yeah, the, the name is just around the original value that I put into the fund. Oh, that's how much, how much, I mean, are you having a ton of fun doing this? It sounds like, Loving you're it. Get it. I mean, are you getting some <laughs> crazy feedback? I'm sure. Well, the thing is, I found it interesting when I was comparing it to my own personal portfolio um, that isn't public. So I, I own pretty much every stock in the 50K challenge in my own portfolio. Um, but there are stocks that I, in my personal, that I don't own in the 50K. And it's actually doing better from a percentage perspective than my personal portfolio. And I think it comes down to the fact that when you're doing something publicly, you, you don't take shortcuts. You really want to make sure that you're not doing something stupid and you kind of question everything you're doing. So maybe I've got to make my whole personal portfolio public just to get some better I was performance. Gonna say, I was going to say, <laughs> show your face, brother. You know? <laughs> well, this whole thing around anonymity, um, it, it really wasn't even a conscious decision. Like going back to Hot Copper, like I was completely against social media growing up. I never had Facebook, never had Instagram, Snapchat, Twitter, whatever you want. I never had any form of social media growing up. So when, when I signed up to Hot Copper, it was the first time I was ever actually signing up to a social kind of site. And going on there, everyone just had made up names, like funny names. So I thought, okay, well, I'll just do the same thing. And I thought, oh, Gladiator, favorite movie of all time. So I'll just pick the Gladiator. Um, so it really wasn't even a conscious decision. Like I'm not, I'm not uh, doing anything where I would have to hide my face or my name, but it's just something that's over the years, there's just now, I'm just known as the Gladiator. So if I change, then no one's going to even know who I really am. I'm just sticking with it for now. And who knows, it might, might change in the future. No, no, I'm like, I'm, I'm liking, this is a good, you know, let's, let's stop talking about sex. Let's talk about branding and marketing. All right. <laughs> sure. So everybody, we're changing the entire thing. I kid, of course. <laughs> All right. So, so getting back to your blog, because one of one post that I think is very relevant right now, we've been talking about this uh, quite frequently on uh, the investors roundtable and you know, it's, it's just been in the yep. news quite a bit is your blog post. There's a Robin hood trader in all of us. So what, what was your thought process here with this post? Um, so I was one of the guys on Twitter and I'll probably slam today where I, I make fun of Robin hood traders. It's not, 
it was just, it's for a laugh. It's kind of the initiation, you know, in the US, I know you guys have a lot of, you know, fraternity and you just kind of, this initiation process when you get into university, you're going to make people do stupid things. You laugh at them as, you know, just so they can be part of the community. So it's really just for a bit Australia of a Australia doesn't have that? Come on. There must be, <laughs> there's not a fraternity system in Australia? No, we, we don't have it all. Um, not at all, no. We're boring here. <laughs> Well, you know, you guys, you guys have your other fun, you know, so I'm, I'm not, we're well, not, I, I think we're not worried about you guys. We drink a lot of beer. That's kind yeah, of our fun. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> and, um, but there was the, the story that came out about the, the Robin Hood trader in the U S who committed suicide, um, because he, uh, thought he had lost a lot of money. So I think that kind of took, took me back a little bit to, and just to reflect on the whole situation of, of that gentleman in the prime of his life, um, regardless of what happened or what he thought he did, um, for him to think that he was in a position where he would have to take his life um, because of something like this made, made the whole kind of uh, situation a bit more serious for me. And thinking back um, to myself and pretty much every new investor that comes into the market, you know, we all make mistakes. We all blow up our accounts. We all buy stocks because of a rocket ship emoji or someone saying he's going to the moon. Um, it's something that we all do. Right now, Robinhood traders get caught out because we're in this crazy volatile environment um, where they're just saying, oh, they're going to lose all their money. Well, sure, but so did we all did in the beginning. So what's the difference between a Robinhood trader now who's outperforming Warren Buffett and me back in 2009, 10, and 11, who was just in a kind of normal market post-GFC and doing the same thing? taking huge risks, losing money and just trying to learn. So it was really just to call out that, you know, we're, we're focusing on them and we're saying they're going to lose money. And you know what? So what? We, we all lost money early on. So why don't we kind of just, yeah, let's end the initiation process and let, and let them into the community. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, look, at the end of the day, like you're going to experience big wins and big losses. There's yeah. going to, no matter what you're going to be, there, there's going to be a, uh, you're going through the university of investing no matter what, Absolutely, yeah. you know, yeah. I mean, I've lost my shorts. You've been blown up twice. And I, yeah. you know, I'm really glad that you highlighted that, that, you know, that there's any silver lining through that horrible experience that, you know, Bill Brewster talked about yeah. so eloquently on, uh, on value, on the value after hours on Tobias's podcast. And yeah. again, my, my thoughts and prayers still continue to go out to Absolutely, the family, yeah. you know? Um, yeah. But if there is any kind of silver lining is that it, 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 it caused, even experienced investors to reflect. And I think, I think that was really cool that what you did with that blog post where you kind of gave some perspective, like, Hey, other experienced investors out there, like, look, we were all newbies at one point. Yep, okay. Absolutely. So like, you know, it's, 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 it's fun here and there maybe to poke fun at some of the craziness that's been happening and some of the characters that have been born as a result of this, you know, but at the same talking time, about Dave Portnoy. I mean, you know, it's, 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 I mean, it's, he's got an, man, what an, probably one of the most incredible marketing things I've Absolutely. seen in a long, yeah. in a long time, you know, but, yeah. uh, but we, you know, I digress because, you know, at the end of the day, there's, there's a lot of interesting things that can be learned from this, you know, and, you know, if anything, I, I, I'd actually be somewhat envious of some of these Robin Hood traders because they're learning faster than maybe you, yep. you it took you three years to kind of get to where you're more or less comfortable. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I completely people agree. are getting, are getting, you know, a crash course in three months. Yep. And if they blow up, then great. You've just had three years condensed into three months and then just start moving forward from there. And I think, um, let's hope they stick the, with it. Of course. But. Yeah, of course. <laughs> I think the investing and the trading game is a pretty lonely place for a lot of people. Um, and so we kind of got to come together 
as an investment community and just say, you know, yeah, it's a bit of fun, but you know, if you are experiencing some really difficult times, then, you know, you can reach out to people. Absolutely. Definitely. Please. Like that's one of the coolest things about Twitter and our FinTwit community is that like, you know, don't be embarrassed. You know, yeah. that, that's probably my number one thing, especially since having a podcast and, and I still know nothing is not to be embarrassed. Ask the dumb question because guess what? You're going to get a good answer out of it. Hopefully. Yeah. And you probably realize that I post a lot about the mistakes that I've made. And it's purely for that reason, because I don't think anyone's made as bad or as many mistakes as I've made in the past. And I share them because I want people to think you've either done the same or less and or you've made the same mistakes that I have or you haven't made as many or as bad as I have. And you, you look at me and I'm not some rich, bloody microcap investor that you can look up to, but I've come out the other end. And if I can, I think people on Twitter and social media are looking more for hope that they can return from the mistakes they've made rather than someone to show them how much money they've made. Oh, I got to kind of focus on. So, oh, man, I've made some, like I've, I've honestly lost over a million dollars in one stock. I don't think many people can say they've lost a million dollars in one stock and stuck with it and will continue regardless of what happens for the rest well, of my life. Wait, you're still in the same name. No, no, as in like I've lo I lost a million dollars. Oh, okay, oh, okay. I, I got but, that part, but I, I thought you meant you said you never sold. And you're just sticking with it. Oh, it's, it's delisted. So oh, I can't stop. <laughs> <laughs> it only happened like, I don't know, it wasn't that long ago. So the whole point is if, if I can lose a million bucks and come back and you know, I'm just a normal guy, I don't have, you know, I didn't come from rich background. I don't have money. So if I can lose a million bucks and come back um, and just stick with it, then anyone can. I mean, I'm sure you, you did not want to talk to your wife that day. That was like a, oh, oh my gosh. You, you don't even want to know. Come on, well, that's actually interesting. I mean, what you know? Look, you lost a million bucks. Like, yeah, please, let's hear it. That's great. Of the story of how I lost a million dollars or how I told my wife. Both. Well, okay. Well, luckily my wife doesn't listen to podcasts. But if we go back <laughs> to 2009, she was my fiance at the time. We made a pack, and I said, I I want to take this amount of money, and I want to invest it under one condition, and, and it was holiday money. So it was, I don't want us to go on this holiday because I want to take that money and invest it. And the one condition is that you can never, ever ask me how I'm going. <laughs> because I, I, because I, I know, you know, based on the name, like, you know, my personality, I'm a bit of a risk taker. I have, um, obviously in the beginning, that's why I blew up my account so many times and risk management is right, you know, the forefront of kind of every decision I make now, but it's kind of in my nature to take risks. And I, I knew I wouldn't be able to take those kinds of risks if my wife knew or my fiance at the time that, you know, I could potentially lose it. So it was like this, pretend this money's gone and I'll see what I can do with it, but you can never ask me how it's going. And so even to this day, and I really hope she doesn't listen to this podcast, <laughs> even to this day, she has no idea how much money I've made or lost in, in stocks 10 years later. Does she know your Twitter handle? Cause that's the only way. Nah. Okay, well, there she, you go. She We're doesn't good. have Twitter. She's got all the other social media platforms, but she doesn't have Twitter. <laughs> don't advertise this on Facebook or anywhere else. <laughs> oh, oh, that's so good. That's so good. So, but if I, I can give you some background on the actual, the stock itself. Sure, yeah. Um, it was, I think about 2015 or 16. Um, it was a micro cap company, um, very, very low valuation. And it was come back to my strategy. It was that coming in at the turnaround stage of the company, 
where the previous directors had just run the company into the ground. And this new team came in who had performed really well in other ASX stocks in the past and during that time. Um, and so I pretty much invested money, uh, it was about $30,000 at the time, uh, pretty much just to back the new guys who had come in. The company didn't really have my doing the cobalt space and cobalt in that time on the ASX was you know by far the the best market to be in, and um, they were looking for new cobalt acquisitions. So I put in um, some money and this about three months later, a new a new director came on board who also had been um, very successful in other stocks, and so I was up five bags before they actually did anything. All they did was appoint this new director, appoint these, these new backers. Um, and I was up five bags and then the company goes into a trading hole and they bring in a new kind of advisory team who had just taken two different stocks to run about 20 bags each. And so these guys followers all just came into the stock and next thing, and I, I averaged up a couple of times. Next thing, you know, sitting at 28 bags and over a million, over a million dollars. Crazily, I didn't sell any. Um, because they hadn't actually announced the acquisition yet. So the company at that point was sitting at about $60 million in market cap for a shell. So that, they had nothing pretty much. And we're sitting at 60 million market cap. I know I should have started. I, I have learned a lot from this. But my reasoning at the time was, if they've got all these hugely successful people into the company, then w when they announce the actual acquisition, um, whatever it is and whenever it comes, then it should just continue to go. Um, and so, cause th those guys had taken a lot of the companies to about six or 700 million market cap. So sounds crazy, but I held, and then they finally go into a, a halt to announce acquisition. The announcement comes out, but then the ASX, um, say they've got a few things that they want, a few answers they want to some of these questions that they had on the actual company, uh, the things that were acquiring, etc. And fast forward two and a half years later, the ASX is still not happy. And they've said they blocked the acquisition. Oh. And so the company actually stopped, uh, went into a halt nearly at its highs and then just delisted. Oh, not long ago. Wow. So, yeah. Oh my gosh, that's crazy. Taking me to a dark, you're taking me to a dark place. <laughs> oh my gosh. Wow. Yeah. And so it, it I kind of had resigned to the fact that it was going to happen even before they delisted because, you know, no, not many companies are in a halt because of the ASX questions for a year or two and come out the other end in a positive way. Yeah. Um, and so it was really hard at the time to just think I've just lost a million dollars. But sitting, I don't, I don't know if you've read the book, how, um, What I Learned Losing a Million Dollars. I haven't. So it's a very, uh, and I read it only because I was going through it myself. Uh, <laughs> it was this book about a guy who had made a million dollars trading, you know, some commodity and different story. Obviously, he didn't just go into a halt and delist, but he kind of held it all the way down and lost himself and his family a lot of money. Um, and one thing that really resonated with me was he said, it was the loss I had to take. Like, I've had big losses in the past, um, nothing close to a million dollars, but um, this was the loss that kind of I needed to make now before you know like he said before i get to 10 million dollars and then i make a 10 million dollar mistake i can never recover from and so that really hit home because it kind of changed um me and my approach to the share market risk management went from maybe third in the list to first so i think it, it 
it has and it will continue to make me a much better investor in the long run. Um, so I've, I've moved forward. I've gotten over it. I don't think about it anymore. Um, well, I do. It's it's a scar that I'll probably never get rid of, but um, it doesn't really upset me anymore. If that makes any sense. Let me tell you something. I'm very thankful that we're able to have a great therapy session right now. <laughs> I'm sure you wanted to talk it out, and here we go. You know, I I, I appreciate you opening up. You know, and, no, no, my uh, pleasure. I should tell my wife. I told my wife one day when I make more, when I make that money back, at exactly. least she won't, she won't kill me. <laughs> no, she's just, very supportive. I'm sure she would never, she wouldn't mind at all because you know it's, it's not money that you know uh, back from 2009 that she probably even remembers till today. So um, yeah, it's, wow, that, it's that's, that'll make, make me better in the long run. So that's for damn sure. Yeah, and you know what? And you know what? Now what you're doing is you're helping so many investors. Um, through these experiences, you know, not just with your blog, yeah. but you also uh, just come out with uh, the, the penny stock investing course, the basics, you know, can you yeah. tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah. So it, the, that course is pretty much bringing together all the different questions that came about from my blog. So I would publish an article on some of the things that I would look at, and then I'd get maybe 20 questions on that want more detail on particular things. And it, it's just not, it wouldn't follow that traditional blog format to kind of bring that all together into one article. I think by the end of the course, because I wrote it out first, it was like 8,000 words. Just, it's difficult to kind of publish something like that and just say, here, read it and you know, you'll be fine after it. So I kind of turned it into a course um, to, to take all of my blogs to the next level of detail and use a lot of real life examples. Um, and, and of course, offer a lot of support after they finish the course. So it's difficult to kind of support someone through a blog. But um, anyone who... Uh, enrolls in the course goes through the content uh, and then wants to talk about how they can use that in their own kind of investing life if they've got a particular question on a particular point then yeah that kind of comes with the package if we can put it that way and we uh, help them work through it got it and, and is it's just a one-time fee or is it like is yeah, it's it just a, it's, yeah it's just yeah it's just a one-time fee and then ongoing support it just kind of comes with the package so um, I'm, I've never really, I'm not a formal educator or anything like that. So um, maybe things will change in the future. I might do more courses and stuff like that. But for now, it's just kind of a, a one-off uh, fee to do the course and I'll, I'll help you through it once you're done. The Gladiator series. Literally, dude, your story is, <laughs> is, is like that. I mean, you don't die at the end, but you know, you, it's not it, yet. It, it, yeah. <laughs> I, you know, I mean, look, you know, it's, it's, it, it's so funny. Like it's with that story. <laughs> I, love now, I wouldn't sound like I'm an aggro guy, but I'm a passionate guy. So that's why I love the gladiator because he's so passionate about what he wants. So, dude, you um, got the. I mean, sorry, people are just hearing the audio version. You only <laughs> see the audio version on on YouTube, but I'll tell everybody. No, he's got he's got the the Caesar cut I've got too, the, right? Yeah. And I got, you know, I got it's, the it's right there. And, yeah. yeah. But, you know this, is, and it's apropos. I mean, you know, Russell Crowe being <laughs> in Australia. No, this this where I should have called you Russell for this instead of Max. But we digress again. Um, oh, it, does, it doesn't look like he does. Uh, he did back in the day when he was doing the gladiator. So <laughs> I look like the old gladiator, not the new one. Yeah, he, you know, he, 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 you know, look, he, he made a couple twenty baggers himself. You know, I mean, that's that's what happens at that. Point. He's a great, he's a great actor. Oh, for yeah. sure. Oh, one of my favorites too. Uh, so I usually ask what experience impacted you the most. I think you pretty much covered that in uh, that. Oh, thank God, there's nothing story. bigger than that. <laughs> <laughs> I'd say if there was, you know, like, look, you might, you might. Uh, you know, you might want to talk to your wife a little bit, you know, at least, at least get some of the you know. <laughs> I told you it's a lonely game, so it's okay. <laughs> oh, man. Well, 
So, so I guess my, my next question then would be, you know, what, what advice do you have for some of these new investors out there? You know, obviously not just go and sign up for your course and read the blog, but you know, yeah, just yeah, from yeah. your experience and, and with where we're at currently right now in our economic and climate pandemic and everything going on, you know, what advice do you have for them? I think the main, the main difference between kind of the investing world and the rest of the world um, is that you have to fail in the beginning. So, you know, no, no business says let's lose money this year so we can make money next year. And no kind of student in university says I'm going to fail this subject so I can do better next semester. Um, but in the investing world, you have to fail in the beginning and fail fast and fail hard. Um, without that, because that is going to come regardless of who you are. Sooner or later, you're going to um, make a huge mistake. You're going to lose a lot of money and you want it to happen in the beginning where you don't have this huge amount of capital that, you know, has taken you a decade or two to build up and then you just, you know, blow it away and then you have to start again. So I think you should come in with the mindset that losing, and it sounds weird, but failing and losing money is a good thing. So you shouldn't quit because that's happened. You should say, great, there's, let's say there's 50 mistakes I can make. I've just made 30. There's only 20 left to go. So I think the main thing is don't worry about money. You're not going to make money consistently in the beginning. You might make a lot of money. You know, I made 100% on my first stock, but you are going to get um, lose the money sooner or later. So you might as well just focus on your process and getting better and understanding risk management than actually trying to make money. Um, and I think the other thing is, you know, I put out a, a survey on Twitter, I think a couple of weeks ago to say, if someone, was a, someone approached you saying, I want to be a full-time investor or trader, how much capital would you say that person needs? Um, and a lot of people, the vast, vast majority said, you know, they, they're doing it off, you know, 10 or $20,000. You know, they're looking at some, you know, trying to make some ridiculous amount of money. And there's nothing wrong with investing that much money when you're learning. But if you're trying, always trying to make a huge sum of money, it just doesn't work. You know, you need to have a kind of portfolio size um, where you're not trying to be the best investor every single day in the world because the pressure is just too great. So I'd say learn with a little bit of money, absolutely. But don't kind of jump in and put so much pressure on yourself to put food on the table and pay the mortgage and look after your family, et cetera, unless you've got a portfolio size that enables you to do that. And there's no hard number, right? But if you look at the most successful investors in the world, you know, I think Warren Buffett is somewhere like 23% compounded return. So if you're looking to make more than 23%, you're going to have to be better than Warren Buffett. And not like it's not saying it's not possible, but don't put so much pressure on yourself to be the best ever. Just the time to um, become a full-time investor, it will come if you love the game and you can stick around long enough. Um, but in the beginning, I would say, don't worry about money and only focus on kind of learning the craft. Um, and yeah. That's phenomenal advice. I hope Fail. everybody hearing that really listened to that. That was some, some of the best advice out there. So with that, where can my audience go and find more information about The Gladiator? Yeah, so my, as you said, my Twitter handle is The Gladiator HC, um, and my website is specinvestor.com.au. And that's pretty much it. Gladiator, it was a pleasure, man. That was so Thank much you so fun. much for having me, mate. I'm a huge fan of your show. Um, I know you've had people on like uh, Tobias and Ian and stuff like that. It's such a huge um, honor to be on the show. And yeah, I hope some people get something out of this. and. I'll be a future listener for sure. Dude, you're going to be a future guest. It was an honor having you on. Oh, was, I'd love that to. That was a ton of fun. That was a <laughs> so ton my of fun. first podcast, you know, give me a rating out of 10. How did I go? 
I'd say I'd say we're about a ten, maybe eleven. Oh, that was no, a great start. Bad. No, we're gonna start. Oh low. shit, we gotta fail. I'm sorry. It was a one. It was a one. <laughs> Excellent. That's great. I can only improve. <laughs> All right, man. Well, thank you very much. That was awesome. Thank you, Bobby.